This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Last but not least, uh, the next speaker, Nora Turot, needs very little introduction. Uh, she's well-renowned in her work in viral hepatitis, and uh, she's now moving to alcohol, I think. <laughs> um, I mean, um, one thing I should announce is that uh, she's elected to be a uh, ASLD president in the year 2022. That's a great honor. <clears throat> and uh, really wonderful news for her and bad news for us is that uh, she has accepted position as division chief at USC. And um, so we really... <laughs> Miss her a lot, knowing her for almost 20 years. I mean, she has been a wonderful mentor, so many fellows, young faculty, and most important, um, she's the best uh, colleague one could ever have. So with her new challenge, and we'd like to congratulate her for this and wish her the best um, of luck and everything. And uh, uh, she's irreplaceable here, and uh, uh, so uh, we'll really miss her. So, uh, so this is... Uh, you know, we may ask her to be a visiting professor next time. But uh, so, you know, her, her uh, talk today, again, she changed the title. Um, <laughs> so hepatitis C in waitlist to patients to treat or not to treat. So, Nora. Thank you. You know, I, get, I, I feel kind of emotional here. <laughs> all that. So thanks very much, uh, Francis. It actually is a, a pretty emotional time for me, I have to tell you. Um, as I'm, I'm sort of watching my colleagues today, I, I, I'm feeling very sad <laughs> and, um, and just so proud, really, of this group. Um, I've been very lucky to be here for the last 20 years, and um, you can only continue to kind of push the envelope in terms of transplantation if you have a great team around you. And all that I've really been able to do is really because of the team. <laughs> so thank you, all of you. I'm... I won't call you all out, but really there's not a single person in the hepatology and transplant surgery group that I'm not totally indebted to in terms of inspiring me and supporting me and, and really allowing me to, to, to do what I do. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful, and I'm going to miss you guys all a lot. But I hope you come and visit me in L.A. <laughs> okay. So... Um, it's, it, yesterday I ran into Nancy Asher at the elevator, and she goes, oh, you're going to give you a swan song. And I went, swan song? Um, but but it's, sort of, it's really interesting to me, actually, because I, I think I've said this before. I, I know my first talk at this meeting would have been on hepatitis C and transplant, and I pretty much have talked on some aspect of that every year since. And it's been an amazing journey in terms of being somebody who took care of patients with hepatitis C and transplant, and I think that's why I'm sort of like so gung-ho on alcohol. Now I see another area where there's just a lot of room for us to do positive changes. But there's still uh, some work to be done. I think Jenny did an amazing job of highlighting for you that really in California we have 
so many patients that are still undiagnosed. So I'm so happy that Jenny's uh, going to carry on the, the mission of ECHO. And now with the Deliver Van, we can bring more um, diagnosis to patients and more care. Um, once you get that patient into tra- to care, it is easy. Um, we cure essentially everyone now, and that includes our post-transplant patients. So what I, ta- I decided to talk about today is the one setting in which you should pause and where you should ask yourself, should I treat? There's probably not any other situation in which that should occur except in the set- setting of somebody who's on the waiting list. So uh, Rio showed you a little of this data, and it's really remarkable that already we can see that HCV is on the decline in terms of an indication for transplantations, both here and in Europe. We can see a very sharp reduction in the patients who are being listed for hepatitis C since DAAs became available. It really was the availability of an all-oral regimen that allowed us to be able to treat more cirrhotics and actually prevent people from needing transplantation. Um, and it's, it's a, a steep drop. A little more steep, I'd say, for decompensated cirrhosis than it is for HCC. And my guess is that HCC and, and, and uh, hepatitis C are going to be around for uh, many more years. Um, but really a remarkable achievement. But still, you're going to see patients who are going to present to you with hepatitis C. They're going to be diagnosed late. We're still making the diagnosis in baby boomers today where they have had it for 50 years and are now being diagnosed for the first time. So you're still making diagnosis. You're still going to be referring patients with hepatitis C. And my message today is about really when you have a patient who you are going to think about referring for transplantation, I want you to pause, not treat that patient, and recognize that there's a complex decision that goes into deciding whether to treat that patient on the waiting list. Because the goals in managing these patients on the waiting list are multiple. There is a subgroup of patients on the waiting list that we can treat, uh, reverse their decompensation, actually obviate their need for a liver transplant. And we are now getting closer to figuring out who those people are. The second is that once we have some on the waiting list, we have to weigh this ability to sort of prevent them from dying before they get to transplant because their disease is progressing, but not take away any opportunity for them to get a transplant. And that juggling of um, who to treat in that setting is is quite challenging. As more patients are um, having HCC as their primary indication for transplant, we now also have to consider, should we treat their hep C to make it them more uh, able to take the local regional therapies that they may need. Um, So that becomes part of the equation. And in the past, and still currently, we treat pre-transplant to prevent post-transplant HCV disease. But really, that is off the list now. Because post-transplant, we can cure everybody. This is not a difficult problem. So we don't treat pre-transplant in order to prevent post-transplant disease because we can manage that post-transplant. So shown here is a data with soft valpatosphere, one of our current therapies. Treat for 12 weeks. You can see across the board, you can achieve SVR rates that are 94 to 100%. And I guarantee you, if you don't treat them, cure them with one, you'll cure them with a second round. These are well-tolerated treatments, very few drug-drug interactions, and really very minimal issues related to rejection. So we don't worry about post-transplant infection anymore. So the decision for the waitlisted patient is entirely upon what they have to gain by being treated on the waiting list. So in addition to those sort of the big three, trying to obviate the need for transplant, prevent death on the waiting list, and to stabilize them to take local regional therapies, the other thing we have to do is try to avoid putting them into male purgatory. So what's malpurgatory? Well, it's a term I think I developed some many years ago in which you would take somebody who has decompensated disease, you treat them, cure them, you make their male score better 
but not better enough. And their clinical status might even improve, but not to the point where they're recompensated and would be able to avoid the need for transplant. So you've made them better, and now because you've cured them, they're very unlikely to get sick. <laughs> they're not going to get worse. Their male score is going to stay there. And that is so-called male purgatory. And that male purgatory is what we probably worry the most about when we think about treating someone. Um, but I will point out to you that it's only a risk for patients who are dependent on their male score to get to transplant. And that's sort of, I mean, that's kind of obvious. But the, but the point is that real males only matter for the patients who have decompensated disease. It doesn't matter for our HCC patients. You just heard Rio speak about this very complicated but efficient system of getting people with cancer to transplant. So our cancer patients have to be considered differently from our decompensated patients because this male purgatory is a different kind of risk. So if you are really dependent on your real meld, you've got to get a meld of 35 to get a transplant, then that's a patient where we have to be a lot more worried about if we treat, will we land them in male purgatory? And we're much more selective about treating that group of patients than patients who have HCC, where regardless of what happens in terms of their real meld, they're going to make it to transplant via meld exception points. And that's true for other meld exceptions, such as, uh, you know, um, pulmonary syndrome, et cetera. And the other group in which we kind of don't worry very much is the living donors, where they have a very direct pathway to transplant, and we can sort of pick and choose when we want to treat those individuals. So what I'm going to talk about is really my thinking in terms of the waitlisted patients who don't have exception status, who have decompensated disease. And I'm going to show you the data that has led to our recommendations currently that this treatment be very selective. So that's why we don't want patients treated before they get to us. Um, and really to focus on how do we identify patients who have a very high likelihood of getting better enough with treatment to be delisted and avoid a transplant. That should be the group we treat. The others, we should probably try to manage to transplant and hope that we can keep them alive so that they can get their liver and then we'll treat them after transplant. So there's actually quite a lot of data now. This In a year, it's remarkable how much we have learned. Um, this was the first study that came out in 2016. It showed that um, this is a Spanish database, and they treat a patient with Savosphere ribavirin. It's kind of an old treatment now. Um, but they showed that if they followed these patients over a five-year period, it's quite a long time now that they followed them, that about a third of those patients could be inactivated, and about 20% were delisted. And they were delisted with true like resolution of uh, their complications of liver disease um, and with uh, male scores that really wouldn't gain, wouldn't, wouldn't, would be what we'd consider to be normal for a patient with cirrhosis. So that 20% is a number that actually has come across, I think, quite consistently. So shown in this table is now across uh, studies from Spain, France, Canada, Europe, and then our data at the bottom. Um, what you can see here is that basically that number of anywhere from 10 to maybe as high as 30%, um, depending on how much time you give. So the longer you follow these patients, yes, you do capture a pr proportion. I think the European uh, cohort is probably the best to see that. We're at one year, it's 7% are able to be delisted. At two years, it's 18%. At three years, it's 27%. Obviously, you've got to survive long enough to get to that uh, 27, but that just gives you a sense that it's a slow process, but a certain proportion of patients will be delisted. The other thing you should take away from this table is that the median meld in these patients that are being treated and focused on is relatively low. We sometimes don't even list people with MEL scores of 13 or 16, but these individuals did have indications for transplant. Um, usually they had, you know, they may have ascites, encephalopathy, but yet had, had lower MEL scores. But just to keep that in mind that we're not talking about treating patients with MEL scores of 25. 
Now, our UCSF experience is actually a mixture of patients who were on the wait list and, and that were not. These were all of our Child's Pew BC patients, uh, so it's a mixture. Uh, but what we looked at was kind of this ability to recompensate. So um, what's shown on this uh, diagram is really the summary of those 204 patients that were followed for about a year after their start of DA therapy. So try to envision that this might be a waitlisted group because they all had decompensated cirrhosis. And you can see that pretty much in the same ballpark as other studies, 24% of the patients recompensated, meaning they had child's pew A cirrhosis. Um, 17 died in that year, uh, 19 underwent a liver transplant, and 40% still remained as, child, as a child's PUBC patient. So again, that 20% number seems about right for what you might expect um, to get from treating patients in terms of getting them better enough that you think they don't need a transplant anymore. And when we looked at our data, what were the predictors of recompensation, we found that absence of ascites, a low bilirubin, higher platelet count, which probably means less portal hypertension, and interestingly, a higher ALT were predictive of a good outcome with treatment. Now, um, a similar study was done with a very large number of study uh, patients. Um, this is the largest reported experience. Um, uh, 620 patients um, were studied. These were all the patients that were in the clinical trials done in patients with cirrhosis leading up to approval of drugs like soft lidiposphere and soft valpatosphere. Um, and again, just to point out, the proportion that achieved, they started out as child's pew BC. How many of them became child's pew B? Kind of the same number, 22%. You are much more likely to be a child's pew A if you started out as a B, 32%, than if you started out as child's pew C, where only 12% of patients achieved child's pew A status. The follow-up period here was 36 weeks from the start of treatment. But why I like this study, uh, in which I was really I was able to participate, is we came up with a score that would help to sort of stratify patients to better help clinicians to judge should I treat or should I not, and it's called a B3A score. And you can see that the, the five components of that score are, are encephalopathy, ascites, albumin, ALT, and BMI. Note that ALT, again, a higher ALT in this uh, scoring system is actually a good thing. So they assign one point for each of those uh, components. And the higher your B3A score, the more likely it is that you're going to achieve child's pew A status, therefore not need a transplant. So, for example, people who have a, a B3A uh, score of 4 or 5 have a 50 to 75% chance that they will achieve that outcome. Whereas if you have a B3A score of 1 or 2, your chance of recompensating and getting to be child's PUA is less than 5%. So that tells you who you should treat. If you have a patient, you should sit down and look. And if they have symptoms that would put them into the uh, a low b 3A score, that's a patient in which we should do everything to get that patient to transplant, but offering them treatment is not likely to allow them to be delisted and probably is going to land them in male purgatory. So what about the male purgatory? The same data set actually looked at this issue, and so just to point out that it's real, but, but interestingly, the proportion of patients that end up in male purgatory is not like everyone. So I think it's important to look at this particular slide. So on the left is the graph um, showing the proportion that we're sort of would be in male purgatory at baseline. This represents somebody who's got a male score under 15, but his child's pew uh, score uh, B or C. 
I mean, this is just an arbitrary definition, but you can see 75% of the patients started out in that class. And then after treatment with DAAs, 58% of them remained in that, that level. You can see a lot of them actually managed to get lower MEL scores and actually lower CPT scores. Those would be the people that could be potentially delisted. But there is a proportion that are going to remain there. So it just points out that, yes, malpurgatory is real. Um, and us. The proportion of patients that are going to be in malpurgatory is going to depend on things like that B3A score um, when you start out. And just to go a little bit deeper, um, if you take the same data set and you say, okay, at the beginning, what happened to the patients that were potentially transplant eligible? So that would be patients that had mal scores over 15, child's PBC, so more severe disease. And if we look at those individuals, what happened to them? So there were 151 of them that were sort of transplant eligible. They all get treated. And then they looked at them a year and um, 36 weeks later, 22% of them, that's that sort of same number, achieved that child's PUA. 31% were in malpurgatory, and 17% had died or been transplanted. So it does point out that you know, treatment gives you a mixed bag. So clearly just blindly going ahead and saying, if I've got somebody with decompensated disease, I should treat them is the wrong answer <laughs> if they're in the, in the pipeline for transplant. You have to be thoughtful about whether we should treat or whether we should do everything to move them towards transplant. That being said people do die on the waiting list. And so whenever I decide on the waiting list to not treat a patient, I am making sure that I tell the patient that there is some risk in doing that, um, that they may in fact not make it to transplant, and that's always a challenge. And even with treatment, they may die and not get to transplant. Um, what are the things that are associated with being in malpurgatory? Well, being treated was one of them, so getting SVR12, but also if you had encephalopathy and ascites. And so this is a very common theme. I think patients who have more severe portal hypertensive complications are the ones that are least likely to get recompensation um, and therefore really are more likely to end up in malpurgatory. That was uh, true in this uh, study also. But... Treatment of the wait list, if you look sort of globally, does reduce wait list deaths. So this is um, a single-center study from Valencia where they really looked over the course of the time that DAs became available and showed that there's no doubt that if you treat with DAs broadly, and in this center they treated broadly on the waiting list, that you do get fewer wait list deaths and you do have more delistings. So there are benefits to treating, but we have to be selective is really my message. So the sort of take-home for this is that when we are sitting down with a patient on the waiting list and trying to decide if we should treat, we're in our head kind of going through the, the benefits and the potential risks. The benefits are delisting. 20 to 30% will probably achieve that. I think we need to use simple tools like the B3A to guide us as to who should be treated. They're generally low male scores, absence of refractory portal hypertensive complications, and keep in mind that high ALT is actually a very favorable factor. Um, know that treatment will reduce weightless mortality, but I would say at this point quantifying exactly what that risk is when we choose not to treat is not well uh, defined. And what we also are lacking is among those people that we say can be delisted, nobody has done any quality of life type outcomes on those patients, so we don't know if they really are happy that they are no longer on the waiting list. Um, and then finally, that 30% are going to end up in male purgatory. So the bottom line is this is a pretty complex decision. Um, it requires a detailed discussion and know that um, even with the very best tools we have available, um, we're going to make wrong decisions from time to time. I'm going to shift to HCC, which I actually think is a much simpler story right now. Um, 
it was maybe more controversial a year ago, but I think right now this is very straightforward. Um, when we have patients referred with HCC as their primary indication for transplant, we have compensated cirrhotics and decomp. So I think compensated cirrhotics, I think treatment here is optional, to be honest. Um, they generally aren't going to get into trouble in terms of having a, a liver complication related to their cirrhosis between the time that they join the list to when they um, get their transplant. And, and we to some extent, like them untreated because they're then eligible for HCB-positive donors, but I think that's a sort of a minor reason because now we give HCB, we're considering giving HCB-positive donors to patients without HCB. The decompensated cirrhotic patient I think you should treat, and here I think it's really clear, and I'm going to show you data, that you really help this patient out by treating their decompensated disease if they have HCC. And the main thing that you're helping this patient is to help them not drop off the list while they're waiting for their transplant. Now, why this is simple to me now but was very controversial a year ago is that there was, as you know, in um, sort of late 2016, two small uncontrolled retrospective cohort studies, one from Spain and one from Italy, that suggested that DAA therapy actually increased the risk of HCC recurrence. So all of us that had cancer patients on the list suddenly stopped treating because we thought maybe the DAAs were somehow making their cancer more likely to recur. But I would say there's been a resounding no vote from the rest of the community in view of just larger, better done studies. And we now have very consistent data that I think is irrefutable, that DAAs do not increase the risk of HCC recurrence. And so we should not be afraid. And we should recognize that there are some potential benefits to our patients in terms of treating those individuals with HCC. And I would say our data is among the best <laughs> in terms of really filling that data gap. So um, we looked at our own experience here. And what we looked at were patients on our wait list with HCC. And as you know, we have very long waiting times here for our HCC patients. So we have a lot of time to view the natural history of patients either who did or did not get DAAs. Um, and in our uh, analysis, um, these individuals, those treated and not treated, had similar initial and explant tumor burden. And what we wanted to look at here was what are the potential risks, both in terms of recurrence of HCC, but more importantly, are there other benefits or harms in terms of treating, no treating? So this is just the outline of the two groups that we looked at. Um, but here's sort of the first uh, main message. And one is in, in our hands, in our study, we showed that we could find no difference in terms of HCC recurrence among patients on the waiting list who got DAAs versus those that did not. And you can see here that the hazard ratio is 1.02, uh, indicating there's no difference in terms of looking at these patients. And we have a long time. This is 24 weeks of follow-up. And we don't see any difference in terms of the recurrence rate in patients who had HCC, had a complete response to their HCC, and then got DAA therapy. And then I think more importantly, we showed there was benefits to treating those patients. So this is now looking on the left at overall survival and on, right, on the right, the probability of drop-off from the wait list from progression of your disease, um, either cancer disease or HCC disease. And you can see those individuals who got DAA therapy actually had better survival and a lower likelihood of falling off the wait list, which we attribute to the fact that we can actually keep their liver disease stable as they're having to wait for uh, their liver transplant. So um, we show that not only do DAAs not be, not be harmful in terms of the HCC recurrence issue, but there are benefits to the patients in terms of um, their wait list outcomes. 
The one caveat um, with treating patients who have HCC is that they actually have lower response rates. Um, this is uh, data from um, several uh, centers, the VA, HCV Target. There's a multi-center Japanese study presented at the ASLD this year. Um, and, um, and there's a single center center from the U.S., except for the Japanese study, which I think is can be explained by their genotype distribution. Um, all of the studies show that there's about a 10 to maybe 15% lower likelihood of getting SVR in patients with um, cancer. And in studies which do multivariate analysis, it indeed is a factor. So, you know, it's not that we don't treat, but we do pause sometimes uh, to think, well, maybe we should wait and treat afterwards. I, again, for patients who don't really need treatment, that might be a factor that would lead us to treating them post-transplant. But again, if we're trying to sort of save lives and prevent weightless drop-offs, we'll, we'll be happy with getting an SVR rate of 80% in the patients with HCC. So putting it all together, this is sort of my bottom line on how to sort of manage your patients on the waiting list. So first and foremost, if a patient has HCV as an indication for liver transplantation, whether they've got decompensated disease or liver cancer, list first, do not treat, um, have that decision about treatment done in conjunction with kind of weighing the pros and cons of that individual's uh, weightless risks. Um, currently, I think the approach at UCSF is demonstrated here. So on the Left side of the diagram, you'll see that the HCC group, in general, if they have compensated liver disease, we can treat them before transplant and we can treat them after. We sort of leave it up in the air, to be honest. Um, for those that are child's pew B or C, uh, we do have that sort of walkthrough in terms of the risks and benefits, but in general, we are tending to treat those patients. The exception would be those patients where we think their time to transplant is very short. They have a living donor or something to that effect. And those that have decompensated uh, disease, which is on the right side of the diagram, if they're child's pew B, that's kind of our choice group for considering treatment. Uh, but we're using scores like the B3A score to help us make those decisions. So if they have low meld, high B3A score, absence of portal hypertensive complications that are refractory, those are for us the prime group to look to treat. And our goal here is to find those 20% that can be removed from the list. Um, and then um, on the other side, if they have higher MEL score, refractory encephalopathy, or their B3A score is low, that'd be a patient where we think they're likely not to get the benefits we would hope them to get, and we would work um, in a more, um, put more of our efforts into trying to get them to transplant more quickly. And certainly for chest PC, that is the agenda, is always no treatment, just get them to transplant. And with that, I'll thank you. All right, let's go for wine, right? <laughs> uh, Varun. So uh, the question is, if you have somebody who has HCC, should you treat the HCC first and then do your DA therapy, or, or can you do them sort of simultaneously? Um, so there, there uh, was a small study, the study from Northwestern, um, suggests that patients who had untreated HCC had especially low rates of response to DA therapy. Um, and so the implication of that is treat them 
treat the cancer first, and when that's well treated, then do DA therapy. And actually, we adopted that once that paper came out. Uh, but we re-looked at it in HCV target with a much larger number of patients, and we couldn't find a difference between response rates in patients with untreated versus treated cancer. So you've got diverse uh, data. So I would say, in general, it's worth waiting, I think, to get them treated. I always tell the patient that's our focus right now is let's get your HCC well-controlled, make sure that we're not having to do kind of complicated therapies. And then when that's sort of settled, then we'll start the treatment. The exception is the patient who's got pretty decompensated disease and where their decompensation is becoming a barrier to them getting their local regional therapy. In that setting, we go ahead and just treat them sort of as the the planning for the HCC is going on. So we do individualize it. In general, try to defer until the HCC is treated except if they really need it to try to stabilize their liver disease. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That means you're treating someone twice, potentially, mm-hmm. once before making things, and then giving them HCV positive organ. And not only is that costly, but I, I still think that we are we look for HCV positive patients to look to place our HCV positive organs on. They still exist, and we still are looking for homes for them. Mm-hmm. So until they become rare, don't you think we should at least consider that is an advantage of not treating someone to give them access to an HCV positive organ? So, so Rhea's question is, um, I sort of minimize the benefit of, of not treating um, in order to get access to HCV-positive organs. So I suppose I'm a little bit ahead of my own curve here. Um, your, your point is well taken. And I think, um, certainly I think it's changing, but I think still that's uh, one important aspect, um, especially if you're in an area where there's a lot of HCV organs available and there are parts of the country where you know, one out of every 10 donors is HCV positive, like in that northeast corner. Um, so I, I agree. So I think that's one thing to consider. I actually think the whole cost argument about, like, treating and then retreating is kind of also going to go away. Our costs for drugs are going down. Um, you know, current therapy is probably going to be, you know, if you do a short course of treatment, which is what we do sometimes um, of only four or eight weeks, you're looking at a cost of therapy that's under $20,000. That's like nothing compared to like somebody who's in hospital and got, you know, complications or compared to a transplant. So, you know, so from my point of view, the cost is becoming less of an issue. Honestly, I would be not unhappy to treat everybody on the <laughs> waiting list and then give them a hep C positive organ and then just treat them again. I mean, honestly, I just think the cost is not such a big barrier. I think more it's like, you know, let's just make sure we're using all these HCV positive organs. And I think rather than sort of saying, let's have all our HCV patients remain untreated and have some of those risks of being untreated, I'd say let's broaden who we can give them to. And that means more the HCV negative recipients. And that's why we have our PROAC study to try to broaden that. Uh, Yeah. maybe a tertiary center to be evaluated, um, the cirrhotics like child B or, uh, you know, like we have a hepatology clinic, I have a nurse practitioner who runs it. So what's the best way to approach uh, referral to you guys to make the decision about people who have cirrhosis? 
I, I think, that, you know, uh, certainly we'd be happy to see a patient who's child's PB where you're uncertain as to whether the patient's going to be transplant tracked or whether this is somebody that you could treat to avoid transplant. This isn't somebody who's transplant eligible. Um, I think that, that if you're sort of on the fence, a child's PB patient, I think that's worth, you know, at least having a discussion with uh, the transplant center to understand sort of where that patient would stand. You know, there are patients who are transplant ineligible, just treat them. I mean, they, they have no other option. But I do think for the patient who, who might be a transplant candidate, I think having that discussion first is helpful. You do not want to land that patient in that male purgatory I spoke to, uh, spoke to you about. Um, so being thoughtful, I think, would be a good idea. Yes? Uh, would you treat co-infected patients with uh, HIV or Hep B? Would, would that influence your decision at all? Um, well, B, no. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't influence, because B for us is a very sort of manageable disease, and so the C becomes, I think, for me, the, the thing that's going to drive my decision-making. Um, co-infected patients, um, we have very little data about how many of those individuals will recompensate when we treat them. Um, so I, that would definitely be kind of a data-free zone in terms of thinking about what, what I'm going to gain by treating a patient on the wait list. Um, and maybe with the HOPE Act, those individuals can get access to transplant in a sort of a more expedient way. So I think a co-infected patient, again, if they're child's pew B, I'd be thoughtful about, you know, what's my quickest way to get them to transplant, and only those that had low males and an absence of more severe portal hypertensive complications would I contemplate doing treatment to avoid transplant. All right, great. I was just curious, like now with the rising opioid epidemic in the country, how do you think that's going to shift our screening and treatment of hep C in the future? Because I anticipate this is going to become a big issue again a few years down the line. Well, this is why Jenny has her deliver van. Get out there and find all those newly infected individuals. <laughs> no. So, um, well, just on a sort of a very sort of broad scale, I think we have to change the way we're screening. So right now, this idea that we're going to screen baby boomers and those at risk. So we know the screening those at risk doesn't really work very well. And the baby boomers are still a very important group, and they're the, a very important group uh, for us because they're more likely to have cirrhosis and, and its complications. But in terms of elimination, uh, the agenda has to be shifting towards younger individuals, which are in the injecting drug use population. That requires us to introduce universal screening. So... That's under consideration at the moment, and from my point of view, that has to come into play for us to really make kind of the dent in the sort of the newly infected group, get to them, bring those individuals into care, treat them, cure them as well. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, and that concludes our afternoon session. I'd like to thank all the speakers for all doing a wonderful job. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.